When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Wealthy. I'm your host, Eric Chemi. Today, we are talking about the mystique, the myth, the magic, the mystery of the private markets and our ability to get access to those private markets. Because a lot of companies, they're not going public as frequently as they used to in the past. So if you want to get access to some of the highest growing companies in America or in the world, you got to look at the private market. So today we're joined by Bob Long. He's the, C- the CEO of Stepstone Private Wealth. Bob, I know you've been on Wealthion you know, last year, so thank you for coming on and joining with me today. Pleasure. Did I get that right? Is, is that the, the general framework, though, that, that a lot of companies that would have gone public in the past, they're not going public now? So the normal person, if you want to get access to them, you have to find them in the private markets. Is that right? That's absolutely true. The universe of public companies has shrunk by about half over the last last 20 years or so. And maybe a more interesting way to think about it, you think about companies of size and scale. So let's say $100 million of revenue. 87% of those in the United States are private today. And in fact, the private markets are deep enough to support enterprises that require a tremendous amount of CapEx of, of investment. Whereas when I started in this business, say 30 years ago, they simply weren't. So the option to stay private, build a substantial business in the private markets or as privately owned is there today that just wasn't 20 or 30 years ago. So say that again, 87% of companies with $100 million or more in annual of revenue, revenue, 87% of those are privately held right now? Yeah, about, it's about 18,000 private companies versus about 2,800 public companies of that size or greater. That, that's a massive scale, right? Because when you think about, oh, the Wilshire 5,000 or a total market index, even someone who says, I'm just going to invest in the whole market and be really diversified, you're not that diversified because there's 18,000 other companies that you don't have access to. You're invested $0 in them. And, and as you know well and your audience knows well, at times over the last four or five years, five to seven public stocks in one sector, the technology sector, have tended to drive most of the movement in the public market. So it's not only access to number of companies, but sectors. And in fact, I, I would argue, this is a bit provocative, that the public markets and the private markets have switched places in terms of what they finance. So when I started in this business, it was the upstarts, the unproven technologies that were financed primarily by the private markets. But you look today, many of the companies, the leading companies in the public markets are technologies that are evolving, are businesses that are frankly hard to understand. And a tremendous number, tremendous portion of companies that have gone public over the last handful of years aren't even profitable. Whereas 20 years ago, call it 80% of companies that went public were profitable. So in some ways, the bread and butter economy is now financed by the private markets and the public markets are more beholden to a handful of high profile sectors, particularly in information technology. That's a good point. They've switched places 
because a lot of public companies don't make money, but in the past, you had to make money first before you would go public, right? It was the private yes. investors that took a chance on unprofitable companies. So what it makes me think about though, are these historical charts, right? You, you have a lot of these experts, authors, financial guys saying, oh, just you know, invest in the long run in the S&P 500 because, you know, look at these 150 year charts. And if you're in the long run, da, da, da. But I'm thinking, well, but that environment doesn't exist anymore. The rules have changed, right? Like you just said, look at all these companies that aren't even public. They're not even going to be in the S&P 500. So it makes me wonder about someone who's obsessed and focused on they doing the right thing. Hey, I'm, I'm DIY. I'm doing it myself. I'm doing low cost funds. I'm paying five bips because I've got the S&P 500. But all of a sudden, are you skewing what you're invested in? Because like you said, it's a lot of unprofitable companies and and it's, it's skewed in terms of the sectors. I can't give you a statistic to back this up, but I can share my personal experience interacting with ultra high net worth individuals. Many of those follow the exact strategy you described for a barbell of their portfolio. And then the other side, they seeking their alpha from the private markets. They go low fee beta on one side and then private market exposure with maybe some munis mixed in depending on their tax situation and where they live. So um, again, I can't back this up with a stat, but I can tell you that is my experience and my observations from interacting with my peers and in our business, which is to serve net worth individuals and to package for them private markets in an accessible way, private market assets in an accessible way. That's the feedback that we hear. What is the, your definition of ultra high net worth? Because I feel like everyone's got a different definition. I'm just curious. Yeah, they do. So, um, you know, my definition of that would be 10 million and up. But to be clear, the products where you see the growth in the private markets for individual investors is at the accredited investor level. So 1 million of investable assets, as opposed to the qualified purchaser level, which is where historically access has been limited to, that's 5 million for individual investors. It differs for institutions. But it, it used to be that you had to be a qualified purchaser to invest in the private markets. You would do it through a traditional drawdown fund, a limited partnership managed by a general partner with you as a limited partner. You would go into those funds, they would have a 10 or 15 year life. You would make a commitment. You're not actually even invested. You're committed to a fund. They draw cap, they call capital from you on a somewhat unpredictable basis over a period of call it five to seven years. They invest in a series of companies and then they harvest those companies to send the money back to you on an unpredictable way. And so that alone, that logistical mechanical challenge prevented many individual investors, even at the ultra high net worth level, from accessing the private markets or certainly accessing it in the ideal scale they'd like to, because it was simply hard mechanically, logistically to do it. And unlike your other exposure, where you know how much muni exposure, how much US large cap equity exposure you have, you're making commitments drawn over time, getting valuations on a quarterly basis on a lag I mean, back to your do-it-yourself investor who's smart and disciplined and trying to know what he or she owns, that's hard. That's hard with the drawdown fund. I'm, I'm listening to that and thinking, oh my gosh, if, if you're telling me, like if I was in that in position, okay, I've committed to something and let's say, you know, Bob's going to call me up or someone's going to call me up 
and say, okay, we need the money and we need it, you know, soon. In business days. That's yeah. the standard. Business that's quick, days. right? That's quick. Now you got to, that means you have to have saved it somewhere or not invested right. in something else, but you never know when the call's coming. So it's, it's kind of just sitting there wasting away a little bit or it's in a money market fund or something. And then, then you got to give it away. And then you have no idea when it's coming back. And it may not be good for you in terms of tax timing. It may not be good for you in terms of, you know, other lumpiness, but because you've committed it, it's not like you can do anything else with it. So I'm listening to that and thinking that would be a headache. And I can see why people would want to shy away from that. But, but so just remind us, so accredited would be the $1 million level yes. qualified purchaser is a, is a higher bar, $5 million level. Is that it's right? Five million. Yes. And there's a qualified client level at 2.1, um, for a few funds, that's a that's a distinctive category that a few funds access. Where does all this money come from right now in the private markets? Right, the way you said that it's switched. There's you know the eighteen thousand companies private, twenty eight hundred public. But where's the money coming from? We know publicly that's the stock market. You buy your equities, you're in there. Institutional funds, all of that. Where where is it in the private? So historically, the financing for the private markets came from family offices, ultra, ultra high net width individuals, you know, the people you read about in the newspapers, and also pension funds and endowments. U.S. pension funds were early movers. Uh, my father was a North Carolina state employee, and the state of North Carolina was an early innovator in investing in private markets. And I'm happy to say he benefited from a very secure pension that was about 25% invested in private equity during his, the time he drew, drew the money. He's passed now. So, those pensions were big, but of course, pensions are shrinking. We've moved to a defined contribution world. It's a topic for another conversation where today in the U.S., and I am personally working on this, if you're in a 401k plan, you don't have good access to private markets. But to answer your question more specifically, the money today, the rapid growth is from the accredited investor the individual investor accessing the private markets. And they do that primarily through a newer structure called an evergreen fund that solves many of the challenges that we've talked about earlier, making it easier for individual investors to access in a convenient way, the private markets. What about the idea that, when I hear the word private equity, I think leverage, I think borrowing, I think, you know, like this, this idea that it's, you're doing a lot more, you're, you're sensitive to interest rates and all of a sudden interest rates aren't 0% anymore. Now they're five. Yeah. And maybe that was the glory days of private equity. Maybe that's behind us now. What's your point of view on that? Because I've heard a lot of conversation along those lines. But certainly low interest rates did benefit private equity. And when we were a world of zero interest rates, the premium returns of private equity were particularly attractive. There's no question about that. But I think your question goes to durability. What's the durability of the returns? So first and foremost, private equity takes on today and then in the modern world, call it 40% leverage. So it's not as the, the companies are not as levered as they used to. When I got in this business, you saw some 80% leverage deals. So you don't see as much leverage today. Secondly, a lot of that leverage is fixed rate. Third, the people that run these funds are very good at financing. And so they're very smart about hedging, fixing their cost where they can. That all said, rising rates certainly does affect, do affect existing investments. And 
what you see there is often in an inflationary environment, the private equity companies, the companies purchased by private equity funds also have the ability to raise their pricing. And so it's a push and pull. Maybe more relevant to the near term though, periods of high rates or higher rates, they weed out the weak deals. If there were transactions, and there certainly were across the private equity landscape, if there were transactions that um, succeeded or were done primarily because debt was really, really inexpensive, well, those, those don't happen in today's environment. And so net-net, I view that as a positive thing. But importantly, private equity is proven. It can create value, not just by leverage, but by operational improvement, growing revenue, cutting costs, expanding markets. In fact, you know, people, people ask me, why private equity? And I answer, because that's where the growth is. <laughs> the growth in private equity-backed companies it's been about 4% in revenue, not just cutting costs. You know, private equity is known for cutting costs. And I think unfairly characterized that way. But the, the, the cold hard reality is private companies have grown revenue by 4% or more per year compounded more than the public company. So they are investing in growing these businesses. And that's what's driven the returns to a large extent. You mentioned the 401k, right? Obviously, yep. when you have a 401k, it's got whatever 10 to 20 options in there. And that's pretty much it. You can't just pick whatever you want. And they're you know, mutual funds, index funds, nothing like this. Where is the access then? Is it someone just got to go into their regular brokerage account? They have to do it through an IRA. What's the access to getting, getting a you know, private, you know, private companies in a public way? In the defined contribution market today in the United States, it's dominated by target date funds, right? These are blended funds. You know, I'll take my, my children who are 30. So they're investing in the you know, 2050 target date fund. Right. And then a, a manager like a Fidelity for a better AT row manages that with a mix of uh, risk and return toward an expected retirement date. Right. So what you see today is a number of the most forward thinking of those target date funds are starting to look at it. And in fact, in some cases, starting to incorporate a modest allocation to the private markets within that. And speaking for myself, I think that is, as opposed to on behalf of our firm, I think that is the most rational and safest way to introduce private market exposure. And Georgetown University has done some research on this where they show a modest allocation in a professionally managed target date fund, a modest allocation to private markets, highly diversified, selected and tailored exactly for the 401k market, can meaningfully change over a 40-year working career, can meaningfully change your retirement outcome. And so um, I'm part of an industry group called the Fine Contribution Alternative Association that has lobbied Congress and has worked with the Department of Labor uh, to make it easier for companies to pick 401k plan menu options that incorporate a little bit of private markets because we believe it enhances returns. But that that's on the come, like that's in the future. Today, you can own private market assets in your IRA uh, without getting into all the details. They, they meet the various tax tests to be owned uh, in an IRA. And so 
evergreen private market funds are a particularly interesting solution, in my opinion, uh, for your IRA, because your IRA is a, you know, it's a pool of capital as an individual that has a very long investment horizon, typically, right? You expect to hold it for a long period of time. And if you are able to achieve the premium returns, which we believe are there in high quality institutional caliber private markets, doing that in our IRA, letting it compound for decades or more, is just a really, really interesting way for individuals to access the private markets and benefit over the long term. There's a lot you said there I want to, I want to get into. Tell me the Defined Contribution Alternatives Association or alternative. Yes. What is say that? Say no, that phrase again. Defined Contribution Alternatives Association org encourage you to go there uh so we uh stepstone helped found that group uh and a number of the leading private markets firms along with the custodians the law firms all the the record keepers all the key people around the 401k market we came together we actually had a meeting last week uh, we meet on a quarterly basis we put out research and our goal is to enhance the ability for regular people like your audience to have a choice, not to make them, but to have a choice when they go to their 401k menu. Yeah, I want the enhanced target date fund that has a modest allocation to alternatives because I believe that will enhance my retirement outcome. And again, we, we our research or research we've accessed shows that it does. So that's it. It's not forcing or requiring. We don't advocate for anyone to be able to choose to put all their money into a stepstone product or anybody else's private market product, but simply to work it into your asset allocation like you were a endowment or foundation. In fact, at a smaller allocation than you were endowment or foundation, but some access to it because it improves diversification in our view, uh, reduces correlations and enhances long-term returns. You know, it's funny, the endowments are interesting because they last forever, right? They just go on right. and on and on, right? If you're a college, we're going to be here in a hundred years. You and I are not going to be here in a hundred years, right? So the timing and, and the philosophy well, are very different in terms of how you invest when, when we know we're going to die. Uh, you know, that said, um, retirement for most individuals is a long dated pool of capital. You know, it's not the capital because private markets do not have instant liquidity. And we should probably talk about that and how liquidity works. They don't provide you instant liquidity like your stock and bond portfolio does. So that's why I believe it makes sense to line up your long dated pool of capital, your retirement assets with long-term investment horizon where private markets, particularly private equity has demonstrated historically a premium return that you can compound. You kept saying the phrase evergreen fund. Yes. And I know you're saying it on purpose for a reason. What, what is the difference between when I think, you know, normal investment, if I go to my IRA, it's like, okay, you know, I can buy an ETF or something. I can buy a mutual fund. I can get in, sure. I can get out. I can do whatever I want with that. My guess is something's different with the evergreen funds. Or how does that work? Well, a mutual fund is an evergreen fund. But and I can so, get out today if I want to. Is there something about okay. like, are you stuck in there? Or or is it is it does it look like a stock the way like a, a mutual fund or ETF? It looks like I can just put a ticker in and trade it. What's going on with these evergreen funds? And how do I how do I trade it? How do I access it? Really good question. So an evergreen fund is a hybrid. It sits between your daily traded exposure that you talked about or these drawdown funds that we talked about. I don't think we noted, you know, those are typically 15 years from first cash flow to last cash flow. And as an individual, you have basically no liquidity in those. There's, you, it's not realistically for you to go sell that fund 
Now, if you're the we'll, MIT we'll call us, we'll call you when the money's ready. One of those kind of deals, right? That's right. So you're, you're basically locked up for 15 years. So an evergreen fund is a hybrid. It sits in between. And they take money in, and I'll say they, we, our funds, and others take money in on a daily or monthly basis, a few or quarterly, most are daily or monthly, like a mutual fund. And they close overnight at the latest net asset value, or the monthly funds close at month end, you know, overnight at the next at the next value. And then they provide liquidity on a regular basis, typically quarterly, typically 5% of the fund. Importantly, not 5% of your investment, but 5% of the fund on a quarterly basis at 100% of now. So that's the way they work, quarterly or daily, monthly or daily in, quarterly out. They provide regular valuations, daily or monthly. You get statements like you would on a mutual fund. And so they do give you the convenience of being able to access frequently to get in and then exit on a quarterly basis. Okay, I, I was going to ask you how how quickly can you get out? So quarterly makes sense. So it's not like I can just get out tomorrow, get out today, because there needs to be some sense for, especially with private investments, what they're doing with that money. And what happens if everybody, everyone decides to get out? Are they going to limit oh, that? That's a good question. Yeah, it's prorated. It's prorated. So if uh, that's never happened, by the way. Or a, if too many people bucket. want to get out this quarter and, and they can't get out of their actual private investments in time. Yeah, exactly. So we you would prorate. So if 10% of your investors, which would be a lot, wanted to get out in a given quarter, then everybody would get half of their investment. And then presumably they'd come back the next quarter and submit a redemption request and get out a prorated portion the next. So it's not perfect liquidity. And everybody that goes into these funds should have a, at least a medium term, you know, three to four year, two to three minimum, preferably longer investment horizon. They should go in. They should go in knowing they will not always be able to get all of their money out immediately, you know, particularly in a period of tremendous financial stress. You may not be able to get all your money out, but you will have much more liquidity than if you'd invested in a drawdown fund where you essentially have no liquidity. So what we found is the, the, this hybrid, this compromise on liquidity has gained a tremendous amount of traction. You asked earlier, where's the money coming from? So pension plans, you know, very, they're, very, they're fewer and fewer of them and men, most of them are closed and you know, not taking new, new people. And so it's the individual investor market is growing at a tremendous pace, providing capital primarily through evergreen funds to the private equity industry. So that's where the growth is in the private equity limited partner base. It's from Evergreen Funds to a meaningful extent. How much can people trust those private company valuations, right? The idea that public mm -hmm. companies, you see it quarterly, there are a lot of analysts or supposedly, right? That's a whole other issue. There's not enough analysts covering these companies, but but the idea that it's it's out there, that people can decipher it, they can go through it, they can look through 10Ks and all this. Private companies, you don't really know, and and the valuations can be a little bit fudgier. So, like, what do you uh, what do you say to people who are concerned about that? First and foremost, it's a really important concern, and you should focus on it if you're going to invest in the private markets. So, let's first describe how it works. You described well the way public company valuations work, although you do have phenomenon like the mean stocks, which sort of defy the efficient market hypothesis that both of you and I were taught in school. Uh, you have flash crashes. 
Um, so public stocks are not immune. And, and frankly, I would argue those public markets aren't, they aren't as efficient today as they were when I got out of school. It just seems there's, there's more subject to um, market breaks. But in the private markets, uh, the funds managed by general partners or sponsors put out valuations on a quarterly basis, and there's a lag. 30 to 60 days after quarter end, the general partner publishes to its limited partners, of which you, know, you might be as an individual or we might be as an evergreen fund, to its limited partners, the valuations. And those valuations often come with a fair amount of backup and specificity, but it's not the full level of disclosure you'd get in a public company 10K fund. It's absolutely true because that information is confidential and proprietary. And to be clear, those companies are planning to sell. Right, you know, they, they are they are bought with a view to, to be sold. But here's how I think about it. First and foremost, valuations in a diversified portfolio are much easier to predict and are much more stable. So you know, if you're investing in one fund that has 10 companies, well, we in through Evergreen funds are investing in thousands of companies managed by dozens, if not hundreds, of different general partners. So How do you do that? How do you invest in thousands of companies? How does that even, who's doing well, the, the due diligence on that? Well, uh, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. We're Stepstone. We're one of the largest allocators to the private markets globally. We manage or advise on over $650 billion of assets, primarily for the world's largest institutions. We're committing about $80 billion a year to 550 separate transactions. And we have a thousand people in 16 countries, 25 offices focused on it. So we have the machine to source, evaluate, execute, track, monitor, value those investments. So that's that's how we think about it. But to get to your point, for any private market investor, valuations are ultimately confirmed by realizations. And since for our evergreen funds, and they are registered companies like and when you sell right the valuation is only confirmed when you sell that's like at the end of the cash flow then and so um we have a tremendous amount of data and analytics one of the things stepstone is known for that helps us confirm and validate valuations along the way but then in addition to that every six months evergreen funds file their financials every six months not every quarter i'll look at our exits so as i said you know in our three portfolio our three strategies we own thousands of companies, even in weak M&A markets and in strong M&A markets, we have a number of round trips, realizations, companies sold over the course of a six month period. And I look at those to see where was where were we holding the asset? What was our mark versus where it was sold? And what I consistently see is a very tight band around actual realized value versus where it was held. And but there are aberrations, there are few, and in particular, across a diversified portfolio, that actual realization gives me great confidence as the person who signs the Sarbanes-Oxley, that our valuations are fair and accurate. They're not perfect. They're never perfect, but they are fair and accurate, particularly on an aggregate basis, because you'll, you know, you'll have a couple of companies that are low and a couple of companies are high. But, but the last time I looked at this, we had 31 round-trip exits over a six-month period. And 28 of those were at or above the last mark. The three that were below were super tight. I think they were a percent and a half, a half percent, and three percent below. So 
sorry to get geeky on you, but I focus on this. Like we are very carefully looking to make sure when the realization occurs that it actually matched where it valued. So that that's that's helpful to understand. And you mentioned Sarbanes Oxley, and and it was getting to one of the questions I was going to ask about: Are there so many private companies because they don't want to go public, they don't want to deal with these hassles? It's way too much regulation now than it would have been twenty years ago. Like you said, it's half the universe now of public companies. Do you think it's a government overstepping regulation type of thing that is permanently changing the game in terms of why we see so few public companies? Been a public company CEO twice, and I'm very familiar, like a traded company, with, with those uh, with those regulations, and they are burdensome. And um, you know, beyond my level of expertise to necessarily say too much or too little, <clears throat> although the actual results would suggest that um, they have limited the desire of executive teams to go public. I, I think that the, the, the data certainly supports that. Yeah, I think it comes back to companies didn't go public for the press and the fame. They went public in most cases to get access to the amount of capital you needed to build. So let's use an, a, a recent example. So SpaceX, can you imagine a company that requires more CapEx than building rocket ships? I have a hard time. It stayed private by accessing over $10 billion of private equity capital and more than a dozen rounds of financing because you can do that today. When I started in this business, the private markets were really not deep enough to support enterprises of that scale, unless you were able to access every significant pool of private capital in the world. Um, you just couldn't, you couldn't do that. And you can do that today. So access to capital doesn't force companies to go public. And I'd say net net, that's a good thing. Net net, that's a good thing. Except for investors who want to get more diversity, then they've got to go through these other ways to get that type of company, right? Because, hey, if these yes. companies don't ever need to go public, you may never see that, right? You may never get a piece of their growth. You may never be able to, differ, to diversify your portfolio with them. They're just like they're, they're cut off from you altogether unless you go through one of these routes. But then it seems like it's like a loophole, right? It's sort of, oh, well, they're not public but anybody can still get them because there's now these public facing vehicles that allow you to get them, but in a diversified way, aggregate way. That's right. And I, um, maybe it's loophole, but I would say, look, the Evergreen funds, ours have a $50,000 minimum. Most of them are available to accredited investors. Um, so a million dollars of investable net worth. And they can't pick and choose, right? Like you can't pick and choose which of the companies, if I put 50,000 in, I'm just going to get the thousands of companies that are in that portfolio. So it's it's a basket. Let's say there's a SpaceX in there, for example. It's just one of thousands of companies. So I'm not really going to have as much risk, let's say, by putting it into one company. Yeah. So that's a pro and con. You know, if what we design and most of our our, our quality peers are doing are diversified portfolios, because we think that is what's best for the individual investor. What you're talking about um, can be done through, say, crowdfunding sources, for example, which do not access the same institutional caliber companies in general that what we what we are doing. And what we seek to do and do deliver is it's the same investment content that Stepstone delivers to 150 of the world's largest institutions. You're an MIT guy. Uh, I won't say whether MIT is a client, but if MIT was a client, the endowment. The same deals going into MIT's 
private equity portfolio managed by Stepstone are going into S prime spring structure, our funds, it's the same, it's the very same deals. And I would encourage anyone who looks at this, whether you're looking at our funds or otherwise, that's the first question to ask. Is this evergreen fund you're considering, is it investing in the same investments as the sponsors other funds? You know, are institutional clients going into the same deals? That is the gating question, I think, when evaluating an evergreen fund. And it should, doesn't need to be 100%, but you need to ask yourself, are these really institutional caliber assets? Are they getting the same pricing? Are the fees similar to what the MIT endowment would pay? Am I getting transparency? All those things are critical to ask when you're trying to access the private markets. You answered the question I was going to ask you. I was going to say, what about the fees? What about transparency? Are these the different different classes of what these investments are? So just talk a little bit more about that, because I think sure. there's not as much, let's say, familiarity with how this works compared to, I think we've spent a couple decades now with ETFs and people have a good sense for what fees they should expect and how they should evaluate you know, hitting your benchmark or who's managing it or their right. process. Here, it, it is those questions. What's the fees? Transparency? Who's managing it? How do you evaluate, you know, let's say your fund versus another fund? Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So I'll organize that around three principles, and it happens to be the three that we design our business around. Convenient, efficient, transparent. So convenient is easy to do business. You know, as we've discussed on this, this interview, it's generally hard to access the private markets. So we have focused, as have our quality peers, on making it as easy for the individual investor as possible. Two of our three funds can be bought with a click. Does not mean they're tradable, but your financial advisor can go to his terminal and buy on a ticker symbol and access puts you into, if you're a credit investor, into, into uh, two of our three funds, S Prime and Structure. Spring is our venture and growth fund. That is not doable that way. It's not executable that way. So convenient, really important. Along with that, all evergreen funds, or the vast majority, offer 1099 tax reporting like a mutual fund. Those drawdown funds, and I don't think we spend a lot of time on this, they provide a K-1, a partnership tax return. It comes to you in October, so you're amending and extending your tax returns. So that's particularly inconvenient. Plus, of course, minimums are high in these drawdown funds. So for evergreen funds, 1099, low minimums, little paperwork or no paperwork. That's first. Efficient. That's another word for cheap. So are you being charged fairly for the investment strategy? Um, so fees generally come in two flavors. First, the management fees, which is like a mutual management fee. And then some evergreen funds charge a performance fee or carried interest or incentive fee. Uh, those tend to be on performance and only earned if there is performance. You certainly should look at your target rate of return and recognize that if the fund has an incentive fee, you know, it's got to cover, that's taken into or taken out of the fee. So you need to look at an overall fee pack. Now, some funds charge acquisition fees, disposition fees, and that sort of thing. We don't do that, but you need to consider that. So you need to read carefully to understand all the types of fees and then ask yourself, and you can research this, is this similar to what an institution would pay? And I, I, I believe Funds we offer, offer fees comparable. They're, they're a little higher because you're individuals and smaller tickets, but comparable to institutional fees. The last thing is transparency. 
So Evergreen Funds publish a net asset value daily or monthly, a few or quarterly. So you know the value of your asset on a regular basis as opposed to waiting you know, quarterly for a drawdown fund capital account statement you know, on a lag. In addition to that, the posting, the, the specifics of those information, like one of the things we do is we publish a quarterly commentary where we describe the components of our return. You know, just like you think about a public stock, how do they make their money? So efficient, convenient, transparent, I think those are the pillars you use to evaluate an evergreen fund. Very good, appreciate it. Uh, this is super helpful, Bob. This you know, opens up my eyes to a, a different side of the investment ecosystem, a different side of the world here. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today and then appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thanks again to my guest, Bob Long, and thank you for watching. Of course, if you liked that episode, please share it, like it, comment, forward, subscribe. All of those things help get the content out to as many people as possible so they can learn and invest better as well. And of course, for all things Wealthion, go to the website, Wealthion.com. There you can see all of our other episodes, the other shows that, that you might be missing out on. And of course, if you're trying to figure out investment advice, you want to talk to a professional, you're trying to figure out what to do for your family's investments, there's a short form on Wealthion.com. You can fill it out. We can get you in front of advisors that we endorse, that we work with, that we have vetted, that we think you might kick it off with. There's no obligation. There's no commitment. This is just a free public service that we provide if that's something that you're interested in. Of course, thanks again for watching, for sharing, for enjoying. I'm Eric Chummy. We'll see you next time. Thank you.